Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Okay, just one more story of lost things being found. When we were experiencing that as a church family a decade ago or whatever it was, there was one guy that came to me. Uh, this was in the fifth or sixth week of this happening. And he said, I've just got to tell you what happened. He said, a year ago, I was playing baseball with my kids at the park. And the park was actually very near to where we lived. And he said, um, I got home afterwards and I realized my wedding band was missing. And it must have been that I took the glove off and off went the ring with. So he was panicked and he went the next day and rented a metal detector, went back to the field, covered the whole field, couldn't find his ring anywhere. And so it was lost cause for a whole year. And then he said, but we've been praying for lost things in our church. And he said, this last week, me and the kids went back to that same park and we were playing soccer this time, and I've lost my foot. No, he didn't say that. But he, uh, <laughs> he said, we were, I was tired, and so I just sat down at one point, and the kids were still playing, and when I sat down on the field, I leaned back in the grass like this, and I felt something in the grass, and I turned and I picked up my wedding band from a year ago. Is that not amazing? Now, what was so cool to us as a church family, like that was something that mattered. I was like, okay, that's not an Apple remote. That's not a cell phone. That's, that's amazing. But as a church family then, we felt, I think God's trying to speak to us together right now to let us know he wants, number one, he wants to be involved in every part of our lives and he is accessible and available in every part. Number two, if he's interested in helping our lost things be found, how much more interested might we be in helping what matters even more to him that is lost? his children be found. And so it spoke to our hearts, and may you, as you find things that are missing, whether by God's help or on your own by accident, be reminded that there are things of great value that are missing in this world. It's the lost children of God. And he has invested everything up to the point of his own blood in finding them, and he's called you and I to infiltrate everyday life with his message and his ministry that others may be found, amen? Okay, book of Genesis, here we go. We're in the second last week of this series. The purpose of the series is really, uh, number one, Genesis 1 through 11, make up the first half of the Bible. So the better we understand the first half of the Bible, the better we understand the second half of the Bible. Secondly, you and I all have our own life stories. They're detailed, they're intricate, they're important. And the story of Genesis 1 through 11 helps make sense of our stories. Thirdly, all of us have deep questions. Whether you're on a faith journey toward God, away from God, or a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, all of us have deep questions. We've been addressing them in a variety of different ways throughout this series. How did everything come to be? What does it mean to be human? Why does it hurt to be human? Can this all be fixed? How will this be fixed? Where is God in the midst of it? Through these weeks of the series so far, we have discovered there's a creator. He has an image in his creation. It's humanity, it's us. Humanity, because of God's love, is given freedom and choice. Two trees are in the garden. Humanity exercises the choice inappropriately, opting for independence. 
There's consequences to independence. And we discover as the consequences are spoken of in Genesis 3, there's still grace in the midst of God's consequences given to us. He's gesturing that, yes, you've chosen independence. This is going to be difficult for you. In fact, it results in death. But he gestures grace and love in the midst of it. He begins signaling that though you've chosen this path, I will be there alongside to help rescue. And it will ultimately culminate in one day. The serpent, the enemy, his head will ultimately be crushed one day. So there's grace inside the garden. Last week, Laura talked about Cain and Abel, which tells us there's grace, God's grace, even outside the garden. There was pain and misery and death occurring. But even in the midst of the story of Cain and Abel, we see God's grace at work outside the garden. Next week, which is Easter, we're actually going to still be in Genesis. And some of you might think, does that even work? Come and find out. We're going to talk about the, the Tower of Babel. And does that have anything to do with Easter? I'll give you a week to think about it, and then you can come let me know what you think after I've shared what I think about that. Today, we're going to cover the biggest span in the first 11 chapters, from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 10. So get ready for about two hours of reading and then three hours of preaching. Um, no, we're not doing that. But we're going to do our best to sort of hover over what goes on in these five chapters. Now... These five chapters carry a story in the middle, which occupy the bulk of these chapters. You're familiar with it. It's a flood. But they're bracketed by something. Before the flood, we find a genealogy, which is Adam all the way to Noah. After the flood, we find another genealogy, which is Noah all the way to the nations. So we have a story of the flood, which is flanked by genealogies. I know that uh, many of us do our best to stay active in regular Bible reading. It's so important for our souls. And sometimes people will give a good effort at the beginning of the year to think, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And you get off to a good start because the first part of the Bible, quite interesting. Genesis, a lot of good stories, a lot of good things to think about. And then you get tripped up along the way with these lists of people, the begats. Have you come across the begats and have you been like, can I just skip over this and... Or fast forward if you're on an app or whatever. Why genealogies in scripture? Is it not a waste of parchment and ink? Let me just give a comment really quickly. We're not going to go deep into genealogy today. But since the flood story is bracketed by genealogy and scripture includes a lot of genealogy, it's worth acknowledging this. Number one, it's actually a genre in scripture. It's there signaling three things that are very important. The first thing is this. The Bible wants us to know God wants us to know that history matters. Number two, God wants us to know that individuals matter. Isn't that nice? I mean, Scripture is the story of God and his interaction with humanity and the people of God. And largely throughout Scripture, there's references to the people of God, the children of God, Israel, the church, these large groups of God's people. But there's these gestures in the begats, reminding you and I, ah, he knows individuals. He cares about individuals. That means he cares about you. He knows your name and you matter as a part of his history. Third thing, third reason why begats are in scripture is to show us that God's purposes continue. Right from the beginning, if you've been tracking with us through this series, we know that God's command to humanity is to multiply and fill the earth. He blessed people and said, fill the earth Make families and fill the earth with my blessing. 
And there's sure a lot of interruptions and interference with God's good work in the earth. Already in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is difficulty of all kind, pain of all kind. And then we get a list of begats, and then we get another list of begats. And what is that telling us? In spite of the human mess and misery, God is still at work and his purposes will still prevail. That's encouraging, I think, to us. I hope you're encouraged by genealogies the next time you read them because how many of you know what it feels like to have life feel messy? Isn't it nice to know that God can still accomplish his purposes? He's not the author of the mess, friends, but he's so good that he can enter into mess and wring good out of it. He can bring healing and hope and restoration and redemption in the midst of mess. Amen? So the begats are a gift. Next time you're falling asleep during the begats, just remember, history matters, people matter, and God's purposes are prevailing. Now, here's what's interesting. Scripture, scripture, especially the first texts that we're reading in the first half of the Bible, have many reflections to other ancient Near Eastern origin stories and texts. Sometimes I allude to that in the series like this one. Um, let me just comment and say that some of the ancient Near Eastern texts that include genealogies, they appear in their texts as bad news, not good news. In the Bible, it appears as good news for the reasons I just shared. But in their texts, in some of the ancient texts that include begats, it's to illustrate how depressed the gods are becoming because the population is booming and they have to figure out what to do with all these people. And they're trying to curb population growth. What a nice contrast to, to be in... A living word of God which values people, cares for people, celebrates people versus the other stories of other nations which are like, you know, people, they're a, nu a nuisance. We really just need them for slave labor, but when there's too many of them, it creates problems for us. So we should really eliminate the number of people. I'm tempted to get on a, you know, a train of thought. I'll resist it except to say this. Who are the gods of the age today? The autonomous self. How does the autonomous self feel about population growth? Hmm. Are they trying to curb it? Hmm. Interesting. I'm thankful for Jesus. I think you are too. Let's go to the text. Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to read a few things in 6. We're going to bounce around to a few places. And then I want to draw your attention to a few important thoughts today. Genesis chapter 6. I don't think I heard one page of the Bible turn. Did I already tell you Genesis? Okay, you're close. Yeah, I see it. It's on the screen. Fair enough. Okay. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. <clears throat> this is, there's some hard news in this, you know. I know you're familiar with, many of you, the flood story. Um, but it's a hard story. How many of you grew up in a Sunday school classroom where there was a flannel graph with an ark and animals and a flood? And there's childhood memory associated with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. Children's... Bibles include this story. Most of them do. It's difficult. Let me say one other thing before we actually begin reading here. Um, I want you to fill in the blank here. If I say the woman at the well, you knew it right away. Um, if I say Jonah and the you know that. Um, if I was to say blank and the flood, you would say right. Can I help reorder the story for you? I know that we've been taught it's Noah and the flood. It's God and the flood. You know, Noah has no words in the story at all. But God has plenty to say. And sometimes even our flannel graph education from youth 
um, has taught us to think that people are the center of God's story and scripture. And it's not so. It's about him and what he's doing in the world. So today we're going to read the story of God and the flood. And it's not pleasant, but there's hope and redemption in the midst of it. Let's start now in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Ooh, this is rough, hey? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. I want you just to pause there for a moment. God knows the real pain of love. Anytime you and I open our hearts up to receive love or to give love especially, you are opening up your heart to the possibility of pain. And here is a demonstration that God is relatable, that he has invested himself with love towards all humanity to the point that when it's not going well, he feels deeply about it. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them. Now, I want to just point out, I don't know how, if you've got built-in ideas of what God is like, you may wonder what this is to sound like. Why is God saying this? Some of you might think he's saying this because he's angry. I want, I want to turn your attention towards this idea. He's saying this because he's sad. Listen to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Then comes a bunch of detail about how to build an ark and to what dimension. Skip down to verse 17 with me. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it will die. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and your sons and your wife, um, and your sons' wives with you. And then, I'm trusting many of us are familiar with it, following this is the actual account of the floodwaters coming. We sung about it in, in Sunday school as well, right? The rains came down, and then what happened? The floods came up, yeah, and so we would sing about it, but it was difficult news then, and we have to pay attention to a few things now. First thing that I want us to think about before um, some critical words that will help us understand what's going on with the flood, first thing I want to just address is why, why the flood? Why the flood? Two primary reasons. Number one, boundaries are crossed. Number two, human destruction. I want you to just think about the crossing of boundaries with me for a moment. As you, if you've been tracking along through these first 11 chapters of Genesis with us, there are several boundaries that are being crossed. Boundaries, parents, you know this. Boundaries are always expression of love from a parent towards a child, aren't they? Even though the child might misinterpret the intent, 
might be uncomfortable with the feeling of the boundaries. Why do boundaries exist? Not for the sake of boundaries. They exist for love. Let's talk quickly about the kind of boundaries that have been crossed. Adam and Eve choose independence. There is the taking of a human life. Cain kills Abel. Lamech, we hear a little bit about if you're reading through the first 11 chapters. He takes two wives, so crosses a boundary there. And then he delights in murder, crossing more boundaries. Then, and again, we're going to fly over this detail at 40,000 feet. I know this is a bizarre one, but as you read through the beginning parts of Genesis, we hear about the sons of God taking daughters of men. And there's all kinds of scholarly directions you could go in understanding what that means. But in the big picture, we understand this. This is a violation of boundaries that God had put in place. And so a flood needs to come in because the boundaries have been crossed. Second reason for a flood is human destruction. Recall verse 5 with me. It says this, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's bad. Only evil all the time. Go to verse 13, uh, 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people of the earth had corrupted their ways. Friends, this is not the Canada we know today. This is not the Comox Valley we know today. Maybe recent history might tell some of us, we'd be familiar with this. This is as if it was 1994 in Rwanda. A million people slaughtered in 100 days. This is genocide. It's happening all the time, everywhere. This is what creation has become. Humanity is totally destroying its world and each other. The text carries on. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. If you're watching on the screen, you're seeing that there's two words that are underlined in a couple of occasions here. The first is corrupt or corrupted. The second word is destroy. I just want to point out to you that the word corrupt and the word destroy, as they're translated into English, are actually the same Hebrew word. So with that in mind, the earth was destroyed in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how destroyed the earth had become for all the people of the earth had been destroying their ways. Daryl Johnson says this, what God chooses to destroy has already destroyed itself. The account of God and the flood is sad and sobering. But friends, it's also full of hope and promise and it points us to Jesus. For us to understand the message of this important story in the first half of the Bible, I want us to give attention for the next few moments to three crucial words. Ready for the first one? Who's ready for the first one? Okay, lean forward with me. Ready? Here it comes. Judgment. Were you hoping for a nicer, happier word? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that there's some words that appear in the Bible and they're like cringy? They make you feel uncomfortable, like obedience. How many of you just love the word obedience and you're not a parent? <laughs> or submission. I could go on and on. There's all kinds of words that live in scripture and guess what, friends? They're there with good intent. They're meant to be a good word. 
But humanity has found a way to distort things and help us misunderstand things. And, but, but I get it. If you're the person that you look at the screen, you're like, judgment. That seems right for a church. You're a bunch of judgy people. You want to talk about some more judgment? I figured it would be like this. Maybe some of us are uncomfortable with the topic or the thought of there being judgment or God being involved in judgment. I hope you'd be open to adjusting your thinking a little bit on this. I want you to just imagine with me for a moment. Could you imagine a court case without judgment? Could you imagine our world without judgment? Could peace exist? Could justice exist without judgment? Can you imagine a God existing that does not judge? Now, the world would love to conjure that idea up, right? And in so many ways, there's attempts, even around fringe parts of Christianity, to sort of neuter the impact and reality of judgment. But in the absence of judgment, there's no mercy, there's no grace, there is no justice. And friends, God is a God of justice. Now, I want, to, I want you to imagine a scenario with me right now. I want you to imagine you've committed a crime. Go ahead, take a moment and imagine the crime you've always wanted to commit. Don't get too carried away and please don't actually take action. But imagine you've committed a crime and now you're in trouble. And so you have to appear in the courts before a judge. Uncomfortable thought, uncomfortable feeling. Now the reality is, I don't know how many judges there are in the justice system in Canada, but there is a spectrum of judges. Some who have reputations for being not good judges. And at the very top of the list would be a judge who would be considered the best judge anyone could appear in front of. Which judge would you want to appear in front of? If you know that there's a best one out there, you want to be in front of the best judge. Friends, it is good news. Can everybody say good news? It is good news for you and I that God is a judge. Psalm 96 says this, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to what? Judge the earth. Ecclesiastes 12 says this, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden or secret thing, whether it is good or Evil. James 4 says this, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Biblical judgment may seem harsh, but I, I, I want you to consider two things. It may seem harsh, but consider the implications of the human choice of independence and consider how destructive that is and how off track it is from how God has designed all things. And consider the judge before whom we appear. Consider his goodness. Consider his nature. nature. Consider his heart. Consider his mercy. Consider that he is just. Daryl Johnson says this, judgment is always God simply giving us the full implications of the path we have chosen for ourselves. His judgment is him giving humanity the final form of our chosen self-destruction. We wanted no boundaries, and that's what we've got. Awful. If you were with us in the fall series, we did 
called the story of God and the five trees. When you look at the second tree in the gospel story, the tree of freedom, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a gesture of freedom that God gives humanity because he's so committed to the possibility of relationship and love, and relationship and love cannot exist without freedom, the freedom to choose or to reject. So God courageously does not make you and I robots, but makes us people with choice. And what we see throughout scripture is we are introduced to a God who actually says to humanity, thy will be done. Now what's beautiful and actually brings hope to our world is when humanity turns instead to God and says, thy will be done. So the first word is judgment. Are you ready for a second word? Would you lean on the front of your seats again one more time with me? Thank you so much. I see a little bit of participation. Ready? Here's another word. This should feel better. Ready? Grace. Everybody happier now? <laughs> Grace. If you look in chapter 6, verse 8, there's grace. So there's judgment that's coming. And how does verse 8 start? But Noah. But Noah what? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If this is the first time, pretend you're hearing this story for the first time. You're reading and hearing about how the world is spiraling into its own destruction. And God is saying, okay, I'm going to come alongside what you're doing. This is now judgment. And then all of a sudden, verse 8 appears and says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Many of us knew the story of Noah as kids, so we think, well, I'm aware of all the things impressive and amazing that Noah did. But when we arrive at verse 8, we actually don't know any of that, right? What are we introduced to? How wonderful and amazing Noah's faith is? Or how great God's grace is? We are introduced to a God of grace here. In the midst of judgment, what happens? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's intentional in the Hebrew written text that that line appears before Noah's resume. Because humanity is wired in a way that if the resume appears first and then it's followed by, and God liked that, we think, oh good, that makes sense. Because we're oriented towards thinking of works-based faith and relationships. But God is not like that. In the midst of judgment and pain and destruction, he shows up giving favor when it's not deserved. Wow. Isn't that good news for all of us? Because all of us have chosen independence in our own ways, and we're very deserving of the destruction that it brings. But God shows up favoring in the midst of that. Wow. I mean, that's, that's good news. And, and he does his act of Giving grace and favor when after the resume? No, before. Before. Daryl Johnson says it like this. Noah is the model of what it means to walk with God. He is out in a desert far from any lake or sea that could float the ship he built. There is no cloud in the sky, at least none pretending to uh, a deluge of the magnitude of the, uh, that the story describes. He is believing a word spoken by God by a God he does not see, trusting a word when nothing in his environment supports it and no one else in his culture believes it. 
impressive. But that's not why God favored him. God favored him because he is a God of grace. In the Old Testament, some of you may think, well, I think we see God's grace only through Jesus in the New Testament. Wrong. Enter God's interaction with Noah. Grace. God of grace. Is God gracious in the Old Testament? You better believe he is. Exodus chapter 34, there's a dialogue and description of what God is truly like. And this line comes to us, and maybe you've heard it before. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it appears over and over. Hints and echoes of that phrase appear more than 20 times in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is gracious. It's his nature, it's his heart, it's his way. And when Jesus shows up, don't you love that? I think if you've tracked with the story of Jesus in the New Testament, he gets baptized in water. And at his baptism, baptism I just made up a new word or a new pronunciation. Uh, at his baptism, a voice is heard saying over Jesus, this is my son whom I love with him, I'm well pleased. Now that's nice. Now some of us might think, well that's really good of the father to speak over the son there. Can you just imagine with me those words that the father spoke over the son? Can you imagine if that happened uh, at the resurrection instead of the baptism? How would we process that as people? We'd think, oh, that makes so much sense because look at all the good things Jesus did. He did all those miracles. He helped people. He healed people. He stood up for marginalized people. And then he gave his life and he died on a cross and then he was resurrected. Good for you, Jesus. You deserve a star from heaven and the father's gonna say, this is my son whom I love with him, I'm well pleased. That's how we'd probably process it if that line appeared after all the work Jesus had done. Where does this line appear? Before Jesus has done anything spectacular. Before he's given his life, before he's been resurrected, the father speaks over the son. Why? Why does he do it? This is the way of our God's grace. He speaks affirmation, he speaks truth, he speaks favor, and we live up to it. We're empowered for it by him. He speaks it before. 1 Timothy 1.9 says this. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the beginning of time. So in the story of Noah, in the story of the flood, in the story of God and the flood, we have judgment. But friends, that's actually good news. And in the story of God and the flood, we have grace. And I want to bring you to a third word now. Ready? Lean forward one more time. Here we go. I really appreciate your participation. Ready? Here it is. Third word, covenant. Would you turn in your scriptures with me to chapter 9? Chapter 9, verse 8. It says this, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, this is now after the flood, the water's come down, Noah and his family and the animals have now come out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, 
This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will remember my covenant between me and between you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all of life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. God is a covenant-making God. Here in this text, in Genesis 1 through 11, we discover God is willing to make promises and arrangements and agreements with humanity, and not just humanity, all of the earth. And this first covenant that appears in Scripture is unique. It's unconditional, and it's unilateral. You observe all the other covenants that occur throughout Scripture, and there are conditions in them. And there is something the other party has to do. In this first covenant, God promises it, and he says there are no conditions, and he promises it saying, you actually have to do nothing in this covenant. I make a promise with you. God is a covenant-making God, and he's willing to engage in covenant with humanity. We see as well in this text that God has a sign for his covenant. In this text, it's a rainbow. If you follow the story of God and the five trees and, and God's work throughout all of Scripture and all the other covenants that appear, there is often a sign, a symbol of that covenant that's built into the arrangement along the way. With Abraham, who enters into a covenant, and for all of Israel that followed afterwards, there was the, the sign of circumcision. And certainly for all the new believers, as we look to Jesus and the covenant we have with God through Jesus Christ, communion becomes a sign of covenant, and we'll celebrate that together in just a few moments. God as a covenant-making God, if you follow the story from beginning and end to end of Scripture, is saying this through covenant. I give myself to you, to humanity, completely, exclusively, and permanently. And if you want to engage in covenant with God, then we give ourselves through baptism and the practice of communion we gesture to God, well, I'm giving myself to you completely and not withholding some of me for me or for others. I'm giving all of myself to you. I'm giving myself to you exclusively, not just sort of, I'll give myself to you and others that I worship. No, I give myself exclusively to you and permanently to you. I want everybody in the room today to know that the story of God and the flood contains hope and promise for you today. Two reasons. Number one, God remembers you. Number two, God will renew all things. If, if, if you were to follow the text of the story of the flood in Hebrew, there's a poetic, um, visual kind of way that the Hebrew language will write things so that hearers have the better opportunity to remember the pattern of the story. And I won't take the time to explain how it works. But if you were a, a Hebrew reader or speaker or you were hearing this story told the way it's written in scripture in the ancient days, you would understand that there's actually a pinnacle in the story or a climax in the story. 
And it's, it's found in chapter 8, verse 1, which says this. Noah's on the ark, floating around. And 8, verse 1 says this. But God remembered Noah. That's actually the pinnacle of the story. God remembered Noah. I just want you to, I want to remind you the context here. Who are the first hearers of this story? It's God's people. Historically, they've been through lots of ups and downs. Imagine you're the people of Israel in captivity in Egypt. You're enslaved and you're hearing this story about God and the flood and Noah's interaction. And the pinnacle of the story is what God remembered Noah. I think it would speak to the people in Egypt at the time, right? Oh, we feel displaced but God will remember us. Who were the first people to read the story? Well, it may have been Israel in Babylon, in exile. They were displaced from where they belonged, kind of like Noah was displaced on a body of water when he was meant to live on land. And what would have spoken to them? God remembered Noah. Right, he remembers us in exile. You know what it's like to have pain, difficulty, to feel displaced in your soul in some kind of way. There's hope for you today. God remembers you. Second thing is that God will renew all things. In the midst of human pain and evil, God arrives with grace and a promise to make all things new again. In the big picture, I know we got into some of the detail of the difficulty surrounding the flood. Why did the flood occur? So that God could start over. He came to make all things new. If you found yourself in a mess, guess what? It doesn't have to stay a mess. God will renew all things. And like we've been discovering through this series, this text, as the others have, points us to Jesus. Friends, this is the good news, and I look forward to telling you this. Before the first covenant, before Noah's covenant received from God that we read about just now, what was going on? There was judgment for all and grace for one, right? Judgment for the whole world, and grace came to whom? Noah. After the last covenant, which is the covenant of Christ, it's reversed. There's now grace for who? All. Because of what? Judgment for one. In the text, in the Hebrew text, when it talks about the sign of the covenant, what, did, what do we call it? What's in the sky? A rainbow. In the Hebrew text, there's actually not a word for rainbow. It just says I have set my bow in the sky. A bow, like a bow. It's a weapon. I've set my weapon, the bow in the sky. Friends, when you look at a rainbow, which way would the arrow be pointing? No, up. See, in the flood, God had to judge the earth. But then he gave a promise, and he pointed the weapon towards the heavens. And one was judged, the living, risen Jesus Christ, so that all could have grace. Remember how we said it's good news that God is a judge. You see, when God is our judge, he looks from his seat into the courtroom and sees you and says, I see your guilt, you are guilty. 
And then he rises and he takes your place and then says, I will take your punishment. Grace for all, judgment for one. Romans 5, 8 says this, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, I invite you today, would you stand with me? Let's be people who look to the Lamb. Let's be people who see the one who carries the fullness of judgment, the fullness of sin, so that all can have grace. Would you worship in response with me before we celebrate in communion together? Prayer to conclude our service. Some of you may have come with something in your heart, in your life, something spoke to you, the spirit worked or moved in a particular way in your soul during our time of worship or the word and you just need to receive prayer with somebody else. Would you take advantage of that opportunity? These people will be available to you as the service concludes. Let me pray for each of us as we prepare to go now. Father, we thank you for your great work in our world made manifest through Jesus Christ. We're going now into your world on your mission. It's our desire to bring your message, your ministry into the everyday stuff of life. We need your power, we need one another, we need the presence of your Holy Spirit. The kind of love and grace that we've experienced, the kind of grace that's available for all, is what we want for people in the Comox Valley. Renew this community, we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. As we conclude now, the band is going to lead us again just in the course of majesty. When you're ready to leave, please, please go. And God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Just Oh, majesty, your grace has found me just as I am, empty-handed but alive in your hand. Oh, majesty.
Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.